Now we have indeed come to the 16th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and if we are spared another couple of weeks by God's grace, we will see ourselves to the final word of this great letter. But this evening we're reading from chapter 16 and verses 1 through 16. So let us give attention here to the Word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenchreai, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Since I'm not going to comment on this later on, I might as well comment on it now. This makes it very clear it's not unspiritual to thank somebody for their service in God's kingdom. You have undoubtedly met people who are too pious to thank anyone for their service because only God should be thanked. And this is one of those texts that indicates to us it's sometimes possible to be more pious than Scripture. And if you're more pious than Scripture, you are by definition less than really pious. But I wasn't going to comment on that, but uh, I've said that now. They risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church and their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles or among the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Staches. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphina and Tryphosa. I wonder if they were twins. Do you think so with names like that? Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I don't think it really matters what age or stage you're at in life when you become a Christian believer. But for most of us who consciously came to faith in Jesus Christ, 
there was a lingering fear in our hearts. We feel it, of course, if we are teenagers, but those who have come to Christ in later years have also felt this fear. It's very simply put, am I going to lose friends? It's almost certain, we think, as we are faced in our own time with the challenge of faith in Jesus Christ and living for Jesus Christ, that when we let people know by word or by deed that we are decided Christian believers, that we are wholly given over to the Lord Jesus Christ, are we going to lose friends? I still remember those thoughts 48 years ago. I am going to lose friends. In God's mercy, as some of you know, I had been reading the Bible from the age of nine to the age of 14, and so there was a text that had both arrested me and thereafter strengthened me. When our Lord Jesus says, you remember, in the gospel in Mark 10 and 29 and 30, no one has ever felt they were giving up anything for the sake of the Lord Jesus, but has in this world received a hundredfold, albeit sometimes with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. I don't know if the Apostle Paul thought about that before that decisive moment when he was flattened on the Damascus Road, but he certainly did lose friends when he became a Christian. My own conviction is that when he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 that for the sake of Jesus Christ he has suffered the loss of all things, he means that quite literally. That is to say, in all likelihood, like so many Jews throughout history in the Orthodox tradition, as soon as he professed himself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, he was immediately disinherited. And so he knew not only what it was to lose friends, but so keenly, given the kind of tight-knit family to which he belonged, some of whom may conceivably be mentioned here, and certainly we know that he kept in touch with his family from the Acts of the Apostles. The costliness of following Jesus Christ can appear to be overwhelming. I wonder if that's the reason that the Apostle Paul is the one apostle in the New Testament who speaks about being adopted into the family of God. Looks to me as though there's a possibility that at least Peter had a mother-in-law who became a Christian believer because, after all, the Lord Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. But for the apostle Paul, disinherited, to be brought into the family of God in Jesus Christ, and in that family to discover the new inheritance of God's grace to him in Jesus Christ, the very things that he had written about at the high point of exaltation in Romans chapter 8 when he'd spoken about the privileges of being adopted, and if we are 
God's sons, then we are God's heirs, heirs of God and unbelievably co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And in that sense, entering into an inheritance in a sense as grand as the inheritance that Jesus Christ has provided for His people. And at the end of the day, that can be put in one single word, which Paul uses in Romans for the first time, I think, in chapter 16, verse 1. You belong to the church. And fascinatingly, this whole section begins with a reference to the church and ends with a references to all the churches. All the churches of Christ greet you. And you catch this marvelous sense as Paul is about to address himself to these many people in the church at Rome that he has a wonderful sense of this glorious inheritance that is his in Christ. That since all who belong to the church of Jesus Christ belong to Jesus Christ by way of inheritance… He has seen of the travail of his soul and been satisfied with the people God has given to him. So, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and feel that we are leaving so much behind that we once held dear and built our lives upon, we enter into an inheritance that is as grand, as expansive, as lasting as the whole church of Jesus Christ. It is an extraordinary inheritance. As Paul says to the Corinthians when they're arguing and saying, I prefer Peter's preaching and someone I prefer Paul's preaching and I prefer, I prefer Apollos' preaching and someone piously says, well, I, I'm, I just think about the Lord Jesus. He says, you stupid idiots. All things are yours in Jesus Christ, whether Paul or Peter or Apollos, it's all yours. And he gives here in what otherwise would simply be a long list of names scribbled down by his scribe Tertius, whose name appears eventually in verse 22, that is replete with this amazing sense the apostle has. Actually, he mentions almost three dozen people in this chapter, and if you connect a couple of children and a few husbands or wives, you've got a hundred people, and that's just in Rome. There's such a glorious testimony to the fact that, as uh, is it Richard Baxter says, he wants not friends that has thy love. And that, I think, is what we're going to give our attention to this evening. Calvin has an interesting, and it will surprise you, I find slightly amusing comment on this chapter. He says, a considerable part of this chapter is taken up with greetings, but since they present no difficulty, it would be wasted effort to spend time on it. Now, he's speaking there not as a preacher, of course, but as a commentator. As a commentator, he liked things to be brief and clear. 
as a preacher he seemed to like about 45 minutes. But actually, we could spend a great deal of time on this passage simply because of the number of people the Apostle Paul mentions here. He refers in his greetings, I think, to 26 people. He gives to these people, I think, at least eight differing descriptions, and he seems to refer to at least three different churches. So I did wonder about preaching three sermons, the first with 26 points, the second with eight points, and the third with three points, or one sermon with three main headings, the first with 26 subpoints, the second with eight subpoints, and the final one with three subpoints. But I think we're going to take that second path without all the subpoints. And I want us, therefore, to think, first of all, as we look at these verses, simply to try and take in the remarkable number of names. And what's striking about these names, I think this is obvious as you read through them, is that they simply seem to flow out of the fullness of the heart of the Apostle Paul. It may be there are one or two places where memory fails him. He'll refer to somebody, and then he'll say those who are with him, and perhaps there were more names he knew that he couldn't quite remember, as it were, under the moment of dictating his letter. But it's a phenomenal thing to think that one man could sit down, address a letter to a church he'd never visited, and off the top of his head simply reel off this long list of names and give so many of them specialized greetings or specialized descriptions. How can he do that? Can you do that? I mean, you might be able to do that about our church, but you've been in our church. Is there another church that you could easily do that about? Just let these names roll off your tongue. I want to know, Paul, I want to know the answer to this question. How were you able to do that? Did he use some kind of special memorization program? I doubt it very much. What was the secret of all this? How did he know so much about these people? Well, I hope we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Several things strike me about these names. First of all, obviously, is the diversity, and Duff James has spoken about that with the children. We could have guessed there was a diversity because he's spoken in this letter about the gospel being for the Jew and the Gentile, and he said that long section in chapter 14 through 15 where he said to deal with some of the differences that have arisen in the church in Rome because of these diverse backgrounds and the fact that they are coming at different speeds and from different places to understand the Scriptures. And they're not all at the same place yet at the same time. But there's another kind of diversity here, several kinds of diversity. There's gender diversity. The way in which he particularly honors. This is so, my friends, this is so unusual in the first century that somebody would so honor the women 
Indeed, it looks as though right from the very first verse that the Apostle Paul has given Phoebe the letter to the Romans. Hope he kept a copy and said, Phoebe, we know you're going to Rome. When you're going to Rome, take this letter with you. And then some of these other women of whom he speaks so wonderfully think about the mother of Rufus, whose name he doesn't mention, but who speaks of her as being a mother not only to Rufus, but also to me. And there are there are several different kinds of Gentile names here, names with a Greek background, names with a Roman background. There are, I think, certainly different strands of socioeconomic life. Phoebe, who goes with the letter, has been a patron, not only to many, but also to me, and presumably comes socioeconomically from a higher class. There are one or two who seem to have a large enough home for a little church to meet there. And there are also those who have slave names, who come from a different, different structure of society altogether. And the thing that thrills Paul, I think obviously from the way in which he speaks of them, is the sheer privilege of knowing these people, of having Phoebe who has been a patron to him, as well as being a servant of the church at Kenchriai, which is one of the indications that Paul probably wrote this letter from Rome, Kenchriai being, I beg your pardon, from Corinth, Kenchriai being the port city near Corinth. And then Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, as Luke calls them, whose lives were interwoven with, with his when they, were, when they were thrown out of Rome because of the riots over Crestus in 49 AD, and how they'd encountered one another, and how they'd re-encountered one another in the Acts of the Apostles, and how Paul had actually lived with them for several months because their occupation was a tent-making business, and that was the particular skill that Saul of Tarsus had learned in the rabbinical school. And then this man who is otherwise unknown to him, to us in verse 5, Epinetus, who was literally the first fruits to Christ in Asia, the first convert to Christ in Asia. I wonder who the first convert in Columbia, South Carolina was. Maybe somebody in the room knows. We should know about him, don't you think? You know, if you've read missionary biography, the first convert is very special, not because of what they are, but because of the sense missionaries and evangelists have had after plowing and plowing that God has broken down the soil and the Word has found a lodging place and, as it were, a, a great gaping hole has been broken into the citadel of the powers of darkness. And they're given great hope that this will, as Paul describes this person, simply be the first fruits of a great coming harvest. And then, in some ways, the most interesting and intriguing person is Rufus the redhead. Verse 13, greet Rufus, 
chosen in the Lord. Now, of course, if they were Christians, they were all chosen in the Lord. So what's he saying here? He's saying something rather special about this man. They're all chosen. But it almost seems to me as though he's saying, you who know Rufus, you know what I mean when I say that he was chosen in the Lord. There is only one other Rufus, as you know, in the New Testament, and I think it's fairly certain this is that Rufus, because when he is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark, Mark assumes everyone, presumably, in Rome knows who he was. Do you know who he was? Do you remember when the Savior was forced out of Jerusalem on his way to Calvary, and he was carrying the cross, and he stumbled? There was a man coming in from the country. Do you remember who he was? And do you remember how Mark is very careful to tell you his son's names were Alexander and Rufus. So this, in all likelihood, is the son of Simon of Cyrene, who bore the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to Calvary and whose wife became a mother to the Apostle Paul. I'll bet there's a novel out there somewhere about this. Don't you think about Rufus, the redhead? And you catch Paul's wonderful sense of the, not only the diversity among the people, but the diversity of God's working. There are diversities of operations, he says to the Corinthians, but there is one Spirit who works so wonderfully in each and all. Isn't that great? But not only is there diversity and a sense of privilege in knowing them, there is a sense already here, and I think this is one of the things that must have thrilled the Apostle Paul, that there has already been the penetration of the gospel into the capital city of the empire represented by these many names whom he lists. Interestingly, you know when you think about it, when he had said the gospel of Jesus Christ is power. Well, the power in the world in which the Apostle Paul lived was the Roman Empire, and the Roman Emperor was the power. Remember what he'd said in chapter 13, let every person be subject to, do you remember the old King James Version, the powers that be translated the governing authorities. Rome was the last word in power. And Paul had said from the beginning, but that isn't the power that will last. And here he's mentioning men and women who have experienced the gospel as the power of God for salvation as they've come to believe in Jesus Christ, and they are penetrating the heart of the Roman Empire. And within 150 years, as I may have cited to you before, the great author Tertullian 
was able to write about what had happened in the Roman Empire when he said in his apology, we are but of yesterday, yet we have filled all the places that belonged to you. The cities, the islands, the forts, the towns, the exchanges, the military camps, the tribes, the town councils, the palace, the senate, the marketplace. We have left you nothing but your temples. And so what we have here, as it were, is the first glimpse into the way in which God had been bringing various people No time to speak about this, but if you read through these names, you realize these people had come from several different places and had been drawn together in this wonderful way to the instruments of God's purposes in the city of Rome, so that within a relatively short space of time, the gospel would go forth conquering and to conquer. So, there's a remarkable number of names, faces, and experiences behind those names. But second, notice there is a rich variety of graces. I mentioned that on a number of occasions, Paul will single out an individual and give them an epithet, a particular description. This is the way I think about you. First of them, of course, is Phoebe, with whom the letter is going. She is a patron. It's interesting that he doesn't say, and with Phoebe I'm sending uh, some of those who have been on my missionary journeys. She's presumably not going on her own, but it doesn't look as though she's going with any of the apostolic band. How can she possibly do that? Presumably, because she has the resources to do that. But look at what she has done with her resources. She has been the patron of many and of the Apostle Paul himself. She has had riches, but she has laid those riches in tribute to Jesus Christ by finding ways in which her riches can serve the gospel through those who are serving in the gospel. She may be the very first person mentioned in Paul's letters as an illustration of how a rich person should use his or her riches. We're glued to our riches, incidentally, aren't we? Because in this room, we're all rich. But we are glued to them, aren't we? We don't give in such a way that it actually is a sacrifice all that often, apparently, according to the statistics friend of mine told me he was speaking at a student conference. And uh, as they do at student conferences, they thought they would do something neat. And so they put up on the screen, don't know whether it was PowerPoint or whether it was so long ago, it was the old slides that went up. It was more modern than that. They put up on the screen some of those marvelous words from the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. 
and the, the point of the exercise, they turned it into a game because everything needs, Christianity needs to be a game these days. We need to enjoy it. And uh, there were some pretty shrewd people did this. And the leader said, as you see the words go up, I want you to say, yes, yes. And so the words went up, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Yes, yes. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Yes, yes. Take my hands, take my feet. Yes, yes. Take my voice. Yes, yes. Take my lips. Yes, yes. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. But not Phoebe. She knew how to use wealth well. And then, of course, our friends Prisca and Aquila, whom he describes, you'll notice, so marvelously in uh, verse 3. Now, most of us who know anything about Prisca and Aquila could have filled in the blank. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. But uh, none of us would have been able to fill in the next words, would we? Who risked their necks for my life? Now, my friends, there is a great deal of talk about being very careful about your zeal as a Christian in the contemporary world. But God wants people who will risk their necks for their fellow Christians. Now, isn't that so interesting? He says, not they risked their necks for the Lord Jesus Christ, although they certainly did that. You are not willing to risk your neck for the Lord Jesus Christ unless you are willing to risk your neck for somebody who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. Paul is, as it were, putting the nail into the heart that says, oh, yes, I would risk my neck for the Lord Jesus, and you find yourself in a situation where you've got to risk your reputation for the sake of a fellow Christian, and you draw back. You can't make that division. You belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ's people. What, a, what an extraordinary thing to be able to say about a fellow Christian. Do you know Prisca and Aquila? I wonder if he mentions her first rather than him first because she was leading the charge in neck-risking. Are you a neck risker, Christian? Risking your neck for your fellow Christians. You see, that's the church. That's what it means to belong to this community. That we're prepared to risk our necks for each other. And then all these hard workers, Mary and Urbanus, and these two I hope they were twins. And Persis, they were all hard workers. 
being a Christian, Paul speaks so often in his letters about just working to the point of exhausting himself in the work of the kingdom. Are you a queen bee Christian or a worker bee Christian? And then Rufus and his dear mother, and whether this was the Rufus whose father bore the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, what a great thing to be able to say about his mother. That's a word for mothers or would-be mothers, isn't it? Dear, dear mothers are the only children you mother, the children to whom you've given birth, because that's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to become a mother to others. And this unnamed woman, unnamed woman, was a mother to the Apostle Paul. And then this man whom those of you who are devoted to the writings of Amy Carmichael will have met frequently in the writings of Amy Carmichael, Apelles, who is approved in verse 10, which means he's been tested, he's been through the fires, he's the real deal. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Amy Carmichael uh, disguises all kinds of people under this name. It's so marvelous. They're all so different. And some of them the same graces as others, but they exercise them in different ways. And some of them are very distinct graces. And some of them, those graces have been produced only because of the providential situation in which God has put them. So there's nothing of a league table here. There's no looking over the shoulder to see whether I'm doing better than somebody else or do I have better gifts than somebody else. There's this marvelous, all-embracing sense of the sheer privilege of having friends like this who have such a rich variety of graces because it takes all of the graces of all of the fellowship of God's people to put on display the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing that binds them all together in harmony is that while we find ourselves living through different providences that shape our lives in particular ways, these graces became preeminent because of the way in which these people responded to the Lord's Word, to the Lord's person, and to the circumstances in which the Lord place them. And it's such a, such a tapestry of grace. And then, of course, thirdly and very briefly, he speaks about a variety of different churches. And it looks to me as though there certainly were three, there may have been four. There's the church that meets in the home of Prisca and Aquila. And Paul speaks about them, doesn't he? Verse 5, greet also the church in their house. And then in verse 14, 
he speaks, speaks about Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers, which the ESV constantly tells us means the brothers and sisters, although we hadn't got that by this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, the brothers and sisters who are with them. And then in verse 15, Philologus, uh, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And then perhaps everyone from verse 5b through to verse 13 perhaps belong to another church. And what's so fascinating here, well, there are many things that are fascinating, but one of the things that's fascinating here is, I don't think you'd really be able to work out from this list who were the weak and who were the strong. Isn't that interesting? Because he's so embraceive of all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back to the question I asked earlier on. How do these names flow so easily? How is he able to use these epithets? I mean, some of us struggle to vary our adjectives describing three people. And he's throwing these adjectives around. How does he know these people so well? How does it come so easily? Well, of course, the answer is that he has got this deep love, but we don't even know that he knows all of these people in the sense of ever having met all of them face to face. What's the explanation? Well, the explanation of what we find here in chapter 16 is something he said right at the beginning in chapter 1. The only possible explanation for this, my dear friends, do you know what it is? I hope you do. It's prayer. That's the only explanation. You know, I am becoming more and more convinced the longer I go on that the secret of people in the church really getting to know each other and the secret of a church really getting to know what's going on in the world is not us sitting looking at each other and talking. It's us bowed down in the presence of God and praying because we learn so much about each other when we pray. That's how Paul knew so much about those he knew, and we learn so much about others when we pray. And those who are our missionaries, we've never met them. They may not be here for two or three or four years, but when they come and they walk through the door and somebody says, that's so-and-so, we're able to go up and talk to them because we've prayed with those who knew them and have prayed for them so much we've been able to pray for them ourselves. And I say again, the church in our time does not believe this is true because it so rarely has experienced it to see whether it's true. And so it's not insignificant that the apostle had spoken in the very first chapter about the frequency with which he prayed for these people. Let me give you an illustration of this. I could keep you here for a long time with illustrations. I was ordained to the gospel ministry in 1971 in Glasgow. One of my first tasks within the first six weeks was to look after John Stott for three days. 1971. What a privilege. I drove him around in my little white mini. 
like Mr. Bean. Must have been an awful experience for him. And he was in our church to speak at a minister's conference and to preach on the, on the evenings. And he was there for, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And we talked a little together. I had no contact whatsoever with Dr. Stott from that day in the fall of 1971 until I think the November of 1982 when we were just about to metaphorically set sail to come to the United States of America and I got a letter through the mail. Somebody he knew had been speaking at a conference I was also speaking at and had, I think, given him the tapes. What a thought to listen to. He was writing to me. And in the letter, 11 years later, no contact. I have sought to pray for you in these years. And this was the thing that blew me away. I mean, he'd spent two days. You know, there's not a lot of oxygen in a mini. I've sought to pray for you and Dorothy. And then he added this little postscript. I hope you won't stay in the United States too long. That's prayer that's modeled on Paul's prayer. And I must end with this. Verse 16, dare we? Greet one another with a holy kiss. I tell you, you know, I have over a hundred commentaries on Paul's letter to the Romans. I haven't looked at all of them this week to see what they all say. I've looked at two or three, and some of them are beside themselves to try and get out of kissing in the church. <laughs> Cultural relativity, and so on. I comment on only two of them, and this will surprise you. The English paraphraser of the New Testament, the wonderful canon J.B. Phillips, translates this. On every occasion it appears, I think there are five in the New Testament. This is very English. A hearty handshake all round. Well, that's better than nothing. A hearty handshake's better than a cold fish handshake. <laughs> but here's something to blow your mind. Many of you know the name of the late Professor John Murray, a doer but great Highlander, to whom I owe more than I could ever say. In his commentary on Romans, writes this, they said at Westminster Seminary that when you came out of one of Professor Murray's lectures, the first book you reached for was an English dictionary, just to try and follow his great vocabulary. Paul, he says, characterizes the kiss as holy, and this distinguishes it from all that is erotic or sensual. And then this, this is a Highlander. There's a Highlander with only one eye. He lost an eye at the age of 19 in the First World War. And uh, 
Those of us who know Westminster, as one or two of us do, know that the story to incoming students, first of all, was, did you know Professor Murray has a glass eye? And then once they'd had a lecture or two, they would come to the older students and say, well, which one is the glass eye? And the older students would say, if you look carefully, there's a glint of humor in one of the eyes. That's the glass eye. (laughs) Okay. Now that I've set you up, listen to Professor Murray. It betrays an unnecessary reserve, if not loss of the ardor of the church's first love when the holy kiss is conspicuous by its absence in the Western church. So, what am I saying? Hey, at least be friendly. If all you can manage is a hearty handshake, give a hearty handshake. And if it's appropriate, a little touch on the arm to somebody you know is discouraged and where it's really appropriate. A holy kiss. Isn't that great? (laughs) Imagine the Apostle Paul arriving in Rome. (laughs) Let the kissing begin. And all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, this is the kind of church to which Paul could write in the hope that they would become his patron in a new Hispanic ministry. Isn't that something today, that we should land on this today? Because that's why he was writing because he felt they had so embraced him and he embraced them in the church that they would send him on their way with kisses. I'm sure if it had been the tradition in those days, this letter would have ended X, X, X. Well, God made them that kind of church. And by His grace, that's the kind of church He's making us. But please, no kisses at the church door. A hearty handshake all round.